first episode of Minute Women. I'm Grace. And I am Linnea. And here on Minute Women, we do all the history that they cannot tell in those cute little iconic one-minute Canadian Heritage Minutes. And this is our first episode, so uh, let's get started. Yeah. So do you want to guess what the first minute Uh, is? I'll I'll give you a clue Okay. in that it's a newer one, so it's not an old one. Because they did a whole bunch of them in the early 90s. And I think those are the ones that a lot of people are familiar with. Those are the ones I grew up on. Those are the ones you grow up on. Those are where you get all the iconic lines of like... Molly Johnson, sir. (laughs) (laughs) Acknowledge. Yeah. (laughs) But they have also recently put out a bunch of new ones. And so I wanted to start with a new one because I think it, as a clue, I think it it makes um, chronological sense a little bit for a first episode. Oh, I don't know how many of those I've seen, the new ones. I think we watched this one together when okay. we were doing our research. Okay, well, what is it? Confederation, Sir John A. Macdonald. Oh. The life and times of Sir John A. Macdonald. And you can, like, check out all of the Heritage Minutes. We'll always post the links for every minute. So in the bio of this episode, we'll leave the link to the YouTube video so you can, like, check out what that one is. But briefly, it's essentially him on a boat sailing to Charlottetown, <laughs> the birthplace of Confederation, to essentially pitch Confederation. The, the birthplace of so many things. Confederation, Anne of Green Gables. No, she wasn't born there. Anne of Green, Anne of Green Gables wasn't born? No, Lucy, Mo- Lucy. She's not real. Well, she is real. In my heart, she's real. She's real. <laughs> yeah, love Charlottetown. That's a lie. I, no, not a lie, but I've only been there once. And I think I went at the wrong time of year. Winter? I, middle of March. Worst time. <laughs> terrible. Being from Nova Scotia, you just expect everywhere to be warm. In the middle of March, and it wasn't. And it wasn't. It was freezing. No, oh, PEI is beautiful. It's a sweet little island. I'm sure it is. I should go. I should go at a better time of year. Mm, it's fun in the summer. Sounds like it. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty. All the beaches and stuff. All right. So tell me about okay. Sir John A. Macdonald. So I decided for this episode, mm-hmm. rather than to focus on Confederation, because I think that's boring. Uh, I would just do yeah, the life of Sir John A. Macdonald. That's good because I really don't know a lot about the guy, other than he is. He's like an Canada's first dude. prime minister. He's an interesting dude. He was prime minister forever. How long? Don't know off the top of my head. Not going <laughs> to lie. But he was the first one. And like up until he died, he was prime minister, I believe. Like on and off prime minister. That's pretty impressive. I'm not a great political history person, but he died in 1891. So from 67 oh. to 91, he's like in parliament. He was running stuff. Running stuff. Running the house. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Do you know what his middle name is? Do you know what A stands for? Oh, it's Adam. Not, no, not quite. One more guess. Alexander. Correct. Oh, ding, 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 ding. Big ding. winner. Okay. He wasn't born a sir, but Sir John A. Macdonald was born in Glasgow, Scotland. Uh, the date of his birth is unclear. So we're off to a great start. We <laughs> don't even know when he was born. <laughs> That's historical Canadian documents. So yeah. <laughs> not really sure. He was either born on the 10th of January, 1815, which is like according to official records, but in his father's diary, he wrote the date of his birth as the 11th, and that's actually when he celebrated his birthday. So for all intensive purposes, his birthday was on the 11th. Well, you know, back then, men didn't really go to hospitals with their wives, so that's probably just the day she went. And he was like, oh yeah, baby's born, but in reality... She probably didn't even go to a hospital. No. It was probably... So John A. McDonald was born in the street. (laughs) He was just like, get out of the house, woman, go have that baby. Please. (laughs) 
Get that baby out of you. I don't have time for your problems. (laughs) When will supper be ready? John was the third of five children. Uh, His father, Hugh McDonald, was an unsuccessful textile merchant known for being exceedingly ambitious but lacking patience and persistence. (laughs) So great father figure. (laughs) Not Um, great qualities for a prime minister. (laughs) John's mother was Helen Shaw, and uh, Hugh and Helen were married for four years before John was born. So over the course of four years, they pumped out three kids. It's like pretty good. That's That's like a great rate. They they get in the same room together and bam. (laughs) Baby. Yeah, we only got so much time, woman. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sure he was a great guy. Maybe not. Maybe Actually, not. we're going to get into it. He All was right, a great let's guy. get into it. Okay. Throughout John's life, uh, Helen, his mother, would remain a steady figure while Hugh was a source of uncertainty in John's oh. life. Shame. Um, Hugh's businesses had left him in a lot of debt, and eventually the family decided to leave Scotland for Upper Canada, which is now Ontario, arriving in 1820. Uh, they leave- now, now, this could be a really ridiculous question, but would this have been, this would have been by boat, I'm assuming. <laughs> Beam me up, Scotty. <laughs> okay. We were talking teleportation. <laughs> Via whale. Yes, by boat. Sorry, I'm not trying to be an asshole. By boat. By boat. By boat, by boat okay. for sure. All right. I don't know how. Yeah. Cool. Okay. <laughs> when did you think that they went? I don't know. Just, you know, people, my question. Bearing I am straight, the viewer here. They walked all the way around. Yes. That's what I thought. <laughs> um, he looks like a thick guy, okay? <laughs> no, he doesn't. Sir Johnny McDonald was not an attractive dude. In my personal opinion. Sorry, John. He had some hair. Rest in peace, but... He did have some hair. Very iconic hair. hair. Yeah, I will say that. iconic. And that nose. Yeah, strong nose. Yeah. Anyways, um, they settled in Kingston, where they already had several family connections. Kingston's beautiful. Never been. Really? It's... You could just pick Kingston up and stick it right in Nova Scotia, and I feel like no one would know the difference. It's... It's it's very nice. I have a friend who goes to Queens. Hi, Ashna. Love you. Um... Well, they settled there. Okay, and it's good for them. A great little town. Um, and his father, Hugh, promptly established another store. Ah, uh, was um, that a failure as well? So the first tragedy of John's life, uh, shortly after they arrived in Kingston, John's younger brother, James, died after he was violently attacked by one of the family's servants who was looking <gasps> after the boys. What? <laughs> yeah. Childhood trauma, I've learned, is like a common thread. So if you want to be like famous, if you want to be prime minister or president or something, have some bad stuff happen real early on. Is this, did this just set you on the right murder path. podcast? I murder. thought this was about Canadian history. I'm going to slip murder into every single one of these oh episodes. Oh my gosh. Even if it's just me confessing to a murder. So the like servant? I'm the Zodiac killer. Killed the child. <laughs> yeah, the servant killed the child. Do you want to know how? Yeah. Okay. So the caregiver. Even if I don't, I feel like the audience <laughs> will. I think for the for the sake of the narrative, we should probably get to that oh point. Oh gosh. Okay. So the caregiver was a man named Kennedy and was a friend and employee of Hugh. Kennedy had brought James and John to a tavern in Kingston because that's where children love to play. You know, <laughs> yeah. family friendly establishments. As John recalled later to a private secretary, uh, Kennedy forced gin on the boys. Uh, John said, "Not like was not liking the taste, so he took James' hand and the two boys like ran home. James tripped and fell. Kennedy caught up with them and then struck James with his cane so viciously that the boy went into convulsions and died a few hours later. Oh my god! He beat the boy into having a seizure, which is not great. Oh my god! Not great for James. Not great for John. 
who has to witness it. And then, like, so that quote comes from him telling his private secretary, like, decades later. So was this servant promptly fired or was this just, like, chill? So the case was never investigated. The family nor the police in Kingston ever pursued charges. Uh, or legal action in connection to the death. Um, the exact reason for that is unclear. James was not given a headstone in the family plot, nor was his death recorded in the notebook Hugh used to record the exact uh, birth times of all of his children. This is some sketchy so, stuff. <laughs> big middle finger to James. Uh, poor little James. Poor James. He never, never had a chance. Never. Rest in peace, James. At least he got some gin first. Yeah, but he didn't like it, um, so unfortunately. He doesn't know what he's missing, but... He never will. Um, anyways, uh, so this this is the most, like, this is the first pivotal thing that happens in young John A. McDonald's life. Uh, the family stayed in Kingston until Hugh's enterprise failed, and he moved the family of to Hay Bay. Of course. Because he's not a good textile Hugh merchant. is a failure. Um, so they moved to Hay Bay, and Hugh's shop fails again. Where's Hay Bay? <laughs> not sure. Um, eventually, Hugh was appointed to a magistrate uh, position for the Midland District. So that's like kind of like the county that Kingston is in. But he was a in. failure. Totally unqualified for that job. Yeah. I could not find a single thing that would be like, you know what? This dude like never investigated the death of his, the violent death of his son, has had a lot of failed businesses. But I think he'd be a great judge. <laughs> like, great guy. <laughs> Um, you yeah. know why, Grace? I wrote what qualified for him for this role. Unclear. You know why? Because he's a man. White man. A white man. Yeah. Uh, warning. This is just like a social justice warrior podcast. Every episode is us calling out white men. And murder. And murder. <laughs> so while his father was fumbling through businesses, uh, fumbled all the way into becoming a judge, John was attending local schools. Doesn't that just say a lot about Canada's legal system? Well, there's not a lot of people around yet. Like, That's Canada true. is underpopulated right now. I'm pretty sure, like, if Kingston had more than a thousand people, I'd be shocked. Okay. It probably had more than a thousand people, but, like, All right. we're talking pretty early uh, okay, okay. urban settlements. So John was attending local schools. His family managed to send him to a private school in Kingston and the Midland District Grammar School, where he was educated in rhetoric, Latin, Greek, grammar, arithmetic, and geography. At 15, his parents decided that he should become a lawyer. Uh, <laughs> law would promise John a comfortable life and was, quote, the obvious choice for a boy who seemed as attracted to studies as he was uninterested in trade. <laughs> so... I don't think he liked school all that much. Okay. And that's that's the vibe I got for that quotation. Or it just means that he really didn't want to do what his dad did. Follow in his father's failing footsteps. Fumbling, tripping, awful, terrible footsteps. Yes. Limping through life <laughs> as an adult man. <laughs> At the time, there were no law schools in British North America. So law became an apprenticeship program. So after passing an exam set by the Law Society of Upper Canada, John was sent to apprentice under George Mackenzie, who at age 35 was already a prominent young lawyer in Kingston. MacDonald showed promise under Mackenzie and by 1833 was entrusted enough to manage the office while Mackenzie was away for business in Lower Canada, which is oh, Quebec. Would you look at that? Would you look at that? He's moving up in the world. Mm. Between 1832 and 1834, however, an outbreak of cholera struck Kingston. As it dun, does. dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. Nearly 25% of the city's population died during the epidemics, including George McKenzie, his, his mentor, uh, in 1834. McDonald temporarily continued his apprenticeship under his cousin in Hallowell. 
Don't know where that is. Uh, but he then returned to Kingston in 1835, where he started to practice as a young lawyer, even though he was not of age, nor had he passed the bar. <laughs> well, so, if you're just got confidence, you're like, listen, I got this shit. Like, I, I got can, this. I can law. I can law. I can law. Let's Let's law. That's what he said. He's like, let's, I'm just going to law. You want to law with me, Linnea? Yes, I want to law. law with you. I law you. I law you too. <laughs> uh, he would be called to the bar in 1836, uh, so a year later. Uh, and at the time, he took on two students, Oliver Mowat and Alexander Campbell, who uh, both would go on to become prominent politicians. So, so he was like, a good teacher. It seems like he was Could a good teacher. and it, Guide the young. Yeah, yeah, I'm pretty sure that he has a falling out with one of them. That might come out a bit later. I forget. Uh-oh. But yeah, so he's like, clearly whoever he takes under his wing kind of like sets their path a little bit. Right, except his younger brother. Except his younger brother. <laughs> who is dead. Well, to be fair, James just inherited his father's ability to fucking trip and fall. <laughs> so like... <laughs> not his it's not john's fault right it's not john's fault that a drunk man beat his younger brother with a cane right we can't fault him for that we can't fault him we'll fault him for other things later on i'm ready so another notable figure in his life during his early career was eliza grimson uh, an irish immigrant who consulted mcdonald concerning a shop she and her husband wished to buy uh the 16 year old the woman uh the 16 year old was described as short and stout with full hips the spitting image of mcdonald's mother in her youth oh well so obviously them's childbearing hips them's childbearing hips and mcdonald is interested um she would go on to be one of his most loyal and wealthy clients and was rumored to be mcdonald's lover as well Ooh, Ooh, I don't like the word lover. I don't really like that word either. But I'm going to use it. I like it. All right. In this, I bet John liked it. John was like, do you want to be my lover? And she was like, you got to get with my friends. <laughs> Eliza Grimson was the first Spice Girl. <laughs> she was. She the- was Coriander. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, she's Irish. I don't know if they know what spices are. Just, no. Just, just potatoes. Salt. <laughs> just salt, pepper. What's your favorite spice? Salt. Pepper. <laughs> she was pepper spice. Pepper spice. Um, McDonald wished to be known in his community, uh, so he joined many societies and would take on cases that would, like, just gain him notoriety. So, for instance, in a high-profile case, uh, McDonald defended William Brass, a man accused of molesting a child. McDonald Uh. attracted positive press for the quality of his defense. Uh, The quality could have been better, though, given that Brass was found guilty and hanged for his crimes. Well, you know, child molestation... Noose. Noose. You get the noose. You kind of deserve that. Sorry. Sorry, Brass. In 1837 and 1838, two armed uprisings broke out in Lower and Upper Canada. Both rebellions were motivated by frustrations over political reform and held the goal of establishing responsible government, which was eventually achieved in the aftermath of the incident. Cue lay-miz sing-along. Yeah, Yeah. sort of. Okay. Kind of. It's definitely a little less... Violent, but it's definitely violent. Okay. A lot of fighting. People, People died. Upset. People died. People died. People died. Yeah. I don't know that much about the 1837, 1838 rebellion, so right. we're just going to move on. Um, the rebellions directly led to the report on the affairs in British North America, uh, which eventually became the British North America Act in 1840. Ooh, I remember that from Grand History, the BNA Act. You're here. Well, I'm yeah. Here. You're I here. Know You've things. arrived. I have arrived. I've arrived. Ascended. <laughs> 
which partially reformed the British provinces into one unitary system. Um, so during this time, all upper Canadian males between the ages of 18 and 60 were members of the sedentary militia, and they were called up during the rebellions of 1837. And the um, women just kept having babies. Kept having babies. Making supper, having making babies. supper. So McDonald served as a private, but did not see any fighting. Uh, he did, however, represent one of the defendants during the subsequent trials. So, like, basically everybody that rose up in arms were like, hey, you're a traitor to the ground. We're going to persecute you. Right. In late 1838, McDonald took uh, another controversial case where he represented an American raider who had killed 16 um, and wounded 60 Canadians during the Battle of the Windmill. Sorry. So it's American raiders. It wasn't just one dude. It <laughs> just was one like American raider. Just slaughtering <laughs> people. Like he was like the original Rambo. So Johnny McDonald is like he's a defense lawyer. Yeah, so, like, during this time, he's a defense lawyer. Right. And he's, like, young and, like, people are, like, really Vivacious. Into- sure, we yeah. can say that. I don't think anyone has ever called Sir John A. McDonald vivacious. But during this particular trial where raiders killed 16 and wounded 60, the men were also accused of mutilation. So according to biographer Donald Creighton, the case uh, with the American Raiders made McDonald mad with grief and rage and horror over the accusations. So essentially, like, he didn't believe that they were... He, he believed that they had killed people, but, he, but like, they hadn't mutilated people. Okay. Like, they hadn't gone too far in the, like, cases of war, I guess. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, he wasn't able to represent any of the prisoners, even if he wanted to, because they were tried by court-martial. And so, like, civilian counsel had no standing. So, right. yeah, tried by court-martial, you don't get a lawyer, essentially. Yeah. He did advise one of the prisoners, though. So, essentially, like, I guess gave him counsel, but, like, wasn't able to represent him in court. The prisoner was sentenced to death, but McDonald's reputation was secured as a public figure, a popular young man, and a senior lawyer. So, like, throughout the rebellions, he is part of all these controversial cases, and ultimately that just, like, bolsters his reputation. He's a household name now. Household name in Kingston, Yeah. yeah. McDonald kept expanding his businesses through Kingston and became a director and lawyer of the Commercial Bank of Midland District. Super fun. However, McDonald's life took a turn in 1841 when his father, Hugh, suddenly died of a brain hemorrhage at 54. Oh, no. Um, which, you know, is, like, pretty old for that time. Hugh. That's a lie. It's, like, still kind of young. How old did you say he was? 54. Oh, yeah, that's pretty young. Yeah, yeah. Shame. Shame. In the subsequent weeks, McDonald's own health took a turn for the worse. One evening, he collapsed at his office, racked with stomach pain. He had always suffered from severe indigestion, which he managed by swallowing handfuls of mints to bring a cooling sensation to his burning stomach. The original Tums. The original Tums. I've got a feeling that is like feels good in the short term, but yeah. is awful in the long run. Yeah. Like, I don't know. Like, that can't be good for your stomach lining. It's just pounding back mints. Mm. Anyways, old medicine terrifies me. Like, I don't like doctors now, and they know what they're doing for the most part. (laughs) I can't imagine going to, like, a woman, and she's like, well... Let's do some bloodletting. Let's do some bloodletting, and let's rub bones together. (laughs) That might work. (laughs) Um, Because all the witch doctors were British. So his, uh, his, his homemade cure of handfuls of mints was not working this time. No. Um, he was bedridden for days. When he did eventually recover, John made plans to travel to Europe to escape the stress of work, his continued health problems, and the grief of his father's death. So he's doing what every college boy out of, you know, first year out of university does. Is he yeah. gets a backpack and he's like, you know what, I'm just going to trample through Europe. Yeah. So 
He's he's going through that phase. He's ready to gallivant. He's yeah, good word. He's yeah. he's like ready to gallivant across Europe. He's ready to find himself. You know, he's not uh, his father's son. He doesn't like have to be Hugh. He does not have to be a failure. <laughs> he doesn't have to be a failure. It's a choice. It's a choice. <laughs> uh, as long as the indigestion doesn't, you know, keep him down. Yeah. Before leaving for Europe, McDonald summoned the strength to partake in a game of loo, which is like a card game. Oh. Um, we're going to be introduced to one of his lovely vices, which is gambling. Oh. The game lasted three days, and in the end, John walked away with 400 pounds. Um, he arrived- I feel like that's that's quite sizable. That's pretty good. The day. I didn't do a conversion, but like I'm pretty sure he only entered the game with like 20. I mean, I'd be happy with $400 <laughs> right now. So. Yeah, pounds. And that's pounds, yeah. So yeah, it's so more. it's, I don't know, again, don't know the conversion. I'm not here for math. I'm not here for math. We are here for history. Here for history. And, and laughs. Uh, he arrived in Britain in early 1842, and his holiday would last two months. During his time there, he met his first cousin, Isabel Clark. And first cousin means wife material. Oh, no. <laughs> Isabel was 32 and was deemed well past her prime when John <laughs> met her uh, when he was 27. She had an over-the-top girlish demeanor, always speaking at lower volumes to force her company to lean in close to hear her. And was generally thought to be plain in attitude and appearance. But what about her? These hips, are like though? historians <laughs> writing about this woman, and they're all scathing. But, they're all just like, this woman, really boring. But does she have those childbearing hips? Well, let's see if she bears some children. <laughs> let's they don't mention along. they don't mention hips. So they're definitely not as good as Eliza's from right. earlier. Because like that's right. like the first thing they mention, other than the fact that she looked like his mom. Yes. But yeah. Uh, I just like love like I was doing the research for this and it's like legitimate historians and they're just like yeah this chick is like not fun <laughs> she is not fun also speaking of the tactic of whispering always to make people lean in to talk to attention you attention seeking attention seeking I don't think I would have liked Isabel that no. much Isabella excuse me anyways <laughs> no evidence of any courtship between her and John existed while he was staying in Britain However, Isabel made the bold move to follow him back to Kingston so she could visit her sister Maria. So, like, their first cousin... To visit her sister. Yeah. Push Yeah, the visit, uh, I believe, was, like, a year, too. Oh. Like, when you go to Canada, it's for, like, a while. You don't, like, stay for a week. You have to go for, like, months. So oh, she's dear. committing. She's like, this is the dude. This is my guy. I'm going to follow him across the globe. No, she was like... And they were like, what? They were like, what? And she's like, this is my guy. What? Can can you, like, speak up? I'm going to Canada. (laughs) John immediately set back to his business once he got back to Kingston, dealing with debts, uh, while Isabella settled with her sister. In the meantime, Isabella's family on the Isle of Man left for Savannah, Georgia. So that's where, like, her, like, so she's still a maid. So she was living with her family when they were back in Britain. And they have left Britain, which means she has nowhere to go back to uh, in Britain. So she can either stay in Kingston or she can go to Savannah. Yeah, so she would have no home to return to if she remained unmarried. This forced John's hand, and he dutifully dutifully started courting Isabella. So essentially, she's, like, cornering him into, like, courting her to, like, get them to get married. I know that Um, my eye rolls aren't audible, but... But, yeah. Eye roll. Uh, Yeah, for closed captioning, uh, Linnea has big eye rolls. (laughs) Big eye rolls. Linnea doesn't like Isabella. No. (laughs) 
Um, He also knew a marriage would redeem his less than noble character when it came to women. Despite his glowing reputation as a lawyer and a man of politics, he was also known to be attracted to women of questionable moral behavior. All the while, he would tell employees, there is no wisdom below the belt. (laughs) Oh, my. So that's some wisdom from Sir John A., if, uh, I think we need to like create like a vision board. Leave room for Jesus. All the Jesus. advice that comes from yeah, Leave room for Jesus. <laughs> There's no wisdom below the belt. McDonald used their impending marriage to increase his public profile, hosting large, elegant parties to celebrate their union. During this time, he was also elected to his first political office, Alderman of Kingston's Fourth Ward. Wow. The engagement could not last forever, though, and Isabella and John were married on the 1st of September, 1843. John left the reception early so he could cut the ribbon to a new law office downtown. That's where his priorities lie. That's where his priorities lie. There's no wisdom below the belt. (laughs) I'm going to leave our wedding so I can cut the ribbon to a new law office. Bye, babe. Bye, babe. Love you. (laughs) See you at home. for supper, by the way. We've got the same grandma. We have the same grandma. Just just a reminder, uh, when we say grandma, we mean the same woman. Yes. Incest. <laughs> There's a lot of incest in heritage minutes. Love that. Um, throughout the 1840s, McDonald's political career grew. He was elected as a conservative representative in the Legislative Assembly of Canada was in 1844. He now? Absolutely. Good for Did him. you know that he was a politician? I didn't. Didn't know. I didn't know. Well, here we are. Not a failure like his dad. Not a failure like his dad. <laughs> While he was not known for being a great orator, he was an expert on election laws and parliamentary procedure, and he used this to his advantage. Good for um, him. Yeah, you know. Just working with what he's got. Work with what you got. Uh, not a great orator, That's but... That's the Canadian way. <laughs> <laughs> this is a podcast where we define the Canadian way. You work with what you've got. You work with what you got. At the same time, Isabella took ill. She managed to recover from her migraines and pain, but the illness became a recurring thing. Uh, Every month? Did she get a migraine every month? (laughs) And pain every month? I can tell you what that is. (laughs) She's not a doctor. Leave her alone. (laughs) She just talks like this. I'm in a lot of pain right now. I'm really, like, searing pain. (laughs) What? (laughs) Searing pain. What? Through my body. (laughs) We can't hear you, Isabel. <laughs> Speak up, woman. Just stay in bed. Stay. I gotta go cut ribbons. That's John. <laughs> Every day he practices. He's like, "All right, I'm just gonna go out back, practice cutting some ribbons." You just, you just keep mumbling over there. That's what he does. He represents child molesters in court and cuts ribbons <laughs> the Canadian way. The Canadian way. Work with what you got. There's no one to blow the belt. <laughs> John's new responsibilities with the assembly meant he could not care for her constantly. Uh, so she went to live in Savannah, Georgia with her family. That's where her family went. That For those of you who might not realize, Savannah, Georgia is quite far from Kingston, Ontario. It's also probably a lot warmer. Like, I'm sure after... Oh, yeah. So you live in Isle of Man. You live in Britain your whole life where... Not that it's not cold, but it's like wet and rainy and damp mm. all the time. And you move to Kingston yeah. where it's freezing. Yeah. Like you get real winter for the first time. And then yep. you go to Savannah, Georgia, which from my general understanding of Georgia is probably like swamp water up to your knees. I was going to say there's some alligators. Got some gators. Got some Cajun spice. <laughs> She's going to have spicy food for the first time. She's, She's not going to know what to do with herself. Yeah. 
I'm jumping back and forth, but this is John's episode. This is not about her. Yeah. She is pulling focus right she's, now. She's back in Savannah. She's in What's Savannah. What's John doing? She wound up staying there for three years. Yeah, John is up in Canada still. So her mysterious illness prompted doctors to heavily medicate her, and she was declared an invalid. <gasps> the rest of their marriage was characterized by John living in Montreal to fulfill his political career with regular visits to Isabella while she lived in the United States. Uh, and then she did later return to Kingston. Oh. Yeah, like, I didn't go into it too, too much because it, like, it, it was kind of hard to follow, but she was, like, all over the place with this, like, medical treatment. Like, so, she goes back and forth to Canada a lot, but yeah. she was in Georgia consistently for three years. This just seems like a marriage of convenience. Like, it, he just it definitely to was be for married, her. picked his first cousin. Yeah. Didn't and, even need her around. No, he was definitely like, I'm marrying you because this will improve my reputation. Yeah. And she was like, I'm 32. I need to get married. I'm an old woman. I am an old spinster right now. I yeah. need I need a, I need me a husband. Yeah, and she got one. She got one. After his visit in 1846, Isabella became pregnant um, and gave birth to their first child. Good thing it was who after died his after visit. 13 months. <laughs> oh no. A lot of babies die. Warning. Oh no. It's, you know. Good thing it was after his visit cuz if not Yeah, that's true. History'd be a little skewed. Also like before John's next visit, she had a baby. Yeah. <laughs> it's a miracle, John. I think I think God chose me. There's got to be a lot of women currently and then who are like, no, it's the second coming of Jesus Christ. <laughs> I swear I didn't cheat on you. Um, it was around this time, or sorry, Isabella. So the first baby dies after 13 months. Um, but Isabella gave birth again in 1850 to Hugh John McDonald. So named after his granddad. Oh, stumbling her life. uncle, her uncle, John's dad and the baby's granddad. It's great that like, you know, it just makes the family tree more like easy to deal with. Yeah, exactly. Cause you know, like just really cuts off. Just yeah. Half of it. Like trees that grow near power lines. We have to trim. Yeah. It's just it's what just you like have that. to do. It's, it's the exact like same. <laughs> it was around this time that John A started drinking excessively, publicly and privately. Uh-oh. Um, he also spent started spending a considerable amount of time with uh, our old favorite Eliza Grimson, woman that looks like his mom, childbearing hips. Mm, gotta can, love those hips. Gotta love those hips. Uh, who continued to support him politically, and the two would often meet alone. After Eliza became pregnant, John gifted her a cradle. Isabella died in 1857, oh. leaving John a widower with a seven-year-old son. John would not principally raise Hugh, um, who ended up living with his aunt and uncle. So, like, his his son wasn't really raised by John Like, as all. in Savannah? Like, lived with the aunt and uncle in Savannah? Or was he in Canada? I'm pretty sure he's in Kingston. So, okay. I, I think it's, it's John. So, John has two sisters who are, like, pretty present throughout his life, okay. his adult life. And I'm pretty sure that's who is, like, who raises Hugh. Okay. Politically, life was going much better for John A. Uh, his profile was increasingly rising and was one of the most he was one of the most powerful men in the Canadian legislature by 1856, um, serving as a joint serving as joint premier of Canada. Throughout the 1860s, the situation for Canada changed, though. Canada enjoyed a period of great prosperity with the improvement of the railroad and the telegraph communications. So, yeah, like when you have one of the one of the big problems when Canada's first forming is that it's so huge that they don't yeah. have any kind of way to like... We're still really big. Still really big, yeah. which creates a lot of like 
regional issues that can't be dealt with on a national level. Yeah. But it's like really bad at this time because you can't even like go to those other places. Right. Like you have to go by wheelbarrow. That's you a lie. You not can't wheelbarrow. FaceTime. You can't FaceTime. Can't call them up. So as the railroad. <laughs> yeah. Send pigeon smoke signals. Yeah. Light the torches. It's just people on mountains lighting fires. Yeah. They're like, oh, they're coming. But yeah, so as like railroad and telegraph communications improve, that starts to get easier and like forming a nation becomes more feasible. Dun, 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 dun. The more you know. Politics, however, became increasingly difficult to manage with the need for a double majority, meaning a party needed a majority legislator from each of the two sections of the province. So at this time, like Canada refers to upper and lower Canada. Right. So it's like divided in two and like you need a majority in upper and lower Canada oh. to have the government, which is like way more po- impossible than just like having a general majority. Yeah. And so like there's a bunch of like political leg essentially. Okay. Furthermore, the American Civil War was creating fear in Canada that once the Oh, the Yankees are coming. <laughs> They're coming. That once the internal war was done, their attention would turn north. The McDonald government fell over a bill to create a militia. Uh, so, like, the, the government falls, uh, crumbles, right. crumbles beneath him. Uh, McDonald was reportedly drinking excessively during this time and had not effectively supported the bill. Yeah, because his uncle started him on gin at <laughs> a very young age. His, his caregiver. His caregiver, right. Kennedy. Not his uncle. Not his uncle. Just the servant who killed his brother. <laughs> yeah, like, life hasn't been great for John, I don't think. He's got think. some trauma. He's got a bit of trauma, so we're going to gamble and drink those problems away. Yeah. Uh, that doesn't get mentioned in the Heritage Minute. No. Oh, that never gets mentioned. That never gets mentioned in the Heritage Minute. This is a podcast where we talk about how drunk everybody was in the Heritage Minutes. Yeah. Yeah. Actors, directors, everybody. That's and not murder. True. And murder. <laughs> uh, yeah, we're always going to try and make this a podcast about murder. <laughs> Uh, John A. McDonald did not remain out of power for long. The parties remained closely matched with a handful of independents able to destroy any government. Does he have friends? (laughs) Because I don't know. I'm just getting this vibe that John has... He doesn't really seem to need people. Like, he doesn't even really need the ladies in his life. Not really, yeah. Like, I think a lot of the friendships he has, like, tend to be in government. So, like, all of his friends are politicians. I don't even know if they're, like, qualify them as as friends. But you said that he did uh, have sisters who he kept in his life. Yeah, and, like, I didn't add it because it's, like, a bit of a tangent. But, like, the... So his mom loves... He's like a mama's boy. Okay. Big mama's boy. Is his mom still alive at this point? His mom is still oh, alive. good. And his sisters are alive. And so he is basically the head of their family. And okay. he feels a lot of pressure to, like, support both of the sisters and the mom financially. Right. As well as himself and his wife and his child. So, like, there's a lot of stress in Johnny's life. Right. <laughs> it's not, it's not super easy going. Hence the drinking. So, by 1864, the political and sectional forces in the province were in a deadlock, uh, and MacDonald reluctantly accepted Brown's proposal for a new coalition of conservatives, clear grits and blues, who could work together for constitutional change. So, there's a lot of different small parties at this time. Like We don't have, like, a two-party system, but we have two, like, dominant parties, I guess. Sure. And at this time, there's a bunch of smaller parties, and MacDonald... Uh, essentially teams up with a man named George Etienne, who's like a French-Canadian, 
and together they form like a coalition government with these three like minor parties and that brings about like a majority government for the first time in a long time so they Yay! can finally get rid of the deadlock Woo! majority governments are for the best yeah so this coalition played a key role in the Confederation of Canada. So at Tell a, me more, Grace. I will tell you everything tell about, me confederation. about Confederation. That's a lie. I this is a little bit about Confederation, <laughs> but honestly, I just wanted to like talk smack about Sir John A. Macdonald. So okay. this is about as political as it gets. This coalition played a key role in the Confederation of Canada at a conference in Charlottetown, PEI in eighteen sixty four, now known as the Charlottetown Conference. Yeah, there's pictures from that. Pictures of it everywhere. It's in the Heritage Minute. Yeah. They like zoom in on him and he's like drunkenly sitting on the stoop while everyone else is standing. Yeah. Like just him. He's the only one sitting down and everyone else is standing up normally. <laughs> so I just love to imagine him just like, all right, I dragged my ass out of bed for this picture. <laughs> We're doing a one and done, guys. One and done. Um. So coalition members met with British delegates from the Maritimes to discuss a potential union. So the three maritime provinces, New, uh, New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, PEI, met with the coalition members from what is now Quebec and Ontario. Okay. And so they're trying to meet, reach some kind of agreement to merge into a, like a, a mega coalition, a mega nation. The message was positively received and led to another conference in Quebec that same year. At this conference, McDonald personally drafted virtually the entire constitution in two weeks. So that was something that I didn't really know. I like I knew he was the first prime minister, but I didn't realize he basically wrote the entire constitution. Drunk. Probably. <laughs> Just licking the pen. <laughs> like, <laughs> Absolutely Quill, wasted writing the constitution. And then on Mondays, it's gonna be Margarita Mondays <laughs> nationwide. <laughs> This one goes out for my uh, Hispanic Canadians, Margarita Mondays. <laughs> and Wednesdays, Wings Night. Nationally. National Wing Night. Unfortunately, that part got cut out. Yeah. Someone did edit it. Someone edited it. He had a lot of ideas, and he was bold. That's why we love him. So this stressful period uh, in McDonald's life was accompanied by excessive drinking and personal <laughs> tragedies. His mother's death in 1861 oh. and financial troubles prompted John to start drinking again. Helen. Helen's gone. But she lived She lived a long life. That sounds like she probably made it to her 60s. Yeah. I, I didn't have her exact date of birth, but like, yeah, yeah she, she was doing all right. All right. It's all right. Everybody's got a time. <laughs> At the, so like just spoiler, everyone we're talking about is dead. Oh, what? <laughs> they're all dead now. So. What? <laughs> Sorry, spoiler alert. They're all dead. At the Quebec conference, McDonald regularly arrived hours late to meetings, half drunk. The drinking became an issue of international drama when in 1866, he arrived in London for discussions of confederations four months late. <laughs> so we showed up to this recording about a half an hour late. Imagine if we showed up for something four months late. It's like, hey, guys, you guys still going? Is this still going? I'm sorry. I brought nachos. Like, what do you do? Like, how do you reconcile being four months late to something? Oh, my gosh. Oh, well, I'm sure he was busy. However, he's he needs still an assistant. Also, how do, how do you become four months late? Like, that's not like I slept in. 
That's like I hibernated for three months. I hibernated. I hibernated. And then it takes a month to get there. Probably. I don't know that, if that's true. See, that to me sounds like he just didn't know. He didn't know it was happening. The date. Oh, July? <laughs> Gee, I thought you said October. Oh, man. However, he still managed to lead the conference, and in 1867, the British North America Act passed, forming the Dominion of Canada out of four provinces, New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, Ontario, and Quebec. I am having PTSD right now about grade nine social studies. and I'm glad that words, this is what that podcast is for you. <laughs> the, like BNA Act, Confederation, BNA Act. dates. <laughs> I'm. <laughs> this is the first time I've heard a date in years. <laughs> years when is it where am i um yeah so like we were talking about the british north america act earlier because there's one in 1840 and then there's another in 1867 so essentially i I don't know if it's a new act with the same name or if it's a same act that gets amended it's literally your job to know i'm sorry this is my first time (laughs) this is the first time i've done this okay be better okay sorry (laughs) i think that's the first criticism i've heard (laughs) from you all day which is sad i don't want us to fight okay let's not fight okay let's not fight okay so in 1867 john married his second wife agnes bernard new character okay so did he never marry the woman with the never married eliza did he have a baby with her unclear so they were definitely like together a lot and then she got pregnant i don't think she was a widow at that time i think she still had a husband and so when she had the baby John gives her a cradle. Like, he gives her a gift. But they were also good friends. So, I don't know. I don't know. Okay. Read into that as much as you will. Gray area. Moving on. Gray area. Moving on. Their courtship was a long one, starting back in 1856, when John first spotted her. Yes, before Isabella had died. Despite being 21 years his junior, Agnes was far more like John than his previous wife. Mainly in both of their love of power. Uh, Agnes wrote in her diary, my love for my love of power is strong, so strong that sometimes I dread it influences me when I imagine I am influenced by a sense of right. So essentially she thinks like power is the equivalent of being right in my brain. Similarly, John confessed, I don't care for office for the sake of money, but for the sake of power, for the sake of carrying out my own views for what's best for our country. Their his views. His views of his what's views. best. He, he knows best. Ah, John knows best. He's a dictator. No wisdom below the belt. It's all up here. Their romance was on and off for a number of years until the two finally married in 1867 in London, just weeks before BNA was passed. Honestly, John seems like the least romantic dude yeah. ever. Yeah, he's like real into power, but so is she. Buying a cradle she is, loves the, that. is the most romantic thing that hey, he babe. did. Yeah, that's true. It probably that's is. That's nice. I mean, he did court Isabella when she was like, I have no other options and I've cornered you. And he's like, all right, I guess I will. I'll do it. I'll do it. I have nowhere. I have nowhere else to go. I'm cornered. I'm, you cornered me. <laughs> Johnny McDonald was made the first Prime Minister of Canada and a Knight Commander of the Order of the Bath, which is why he's Sir Johnny McDonald. Oh. On July first, eighteen sixty-seven. Economic growth in the new country was slow. Much work remained to do in creating a federal government. But he's a Prime Minister now. He's Prime Minister now. He's top dog. So he's got to figure this stuff out. Yeah. So like. Immediately after Confederation, it's like, oh, God, how do we make money? Yeah. We don't have any more money for Britain. We need to figure this out. 
Nova Scotia was already threatening to withdraw from Union instantly. That's my province right there. It's like, oh, we joined? Okay, we're leaving. We don't want to be here. See ya. Bye. (laughs) The Intercolonial Railway, which would both conciliate the Maritimes and bind them closer to the rest of Canada, was not yet built. So, like, a big reason that the Maritimes joined is, like, you're going to build us a railway, right? And it's taking forever to build that railway. Empty promises. Empty provinces from the federal government. Wow. Shocker. Shocker. Anglo-American relations were in a poor state and Canadian foreign relations were matters handled in London. So, like, there's still some things handled in Britain. Foreign affairs is one of them. And their relationship with America, therefore, is totally being, like, essentially Britain's like, we're going to control those affairs and we don't want you to have great economic relations with America because that would pull money away from us. Britain just doesn't want to let go. Yeah, they just don't want to let go. It's time to move on, babe. Yeah. Like, you know. They, just, they still have a piece of Canada. They forever. Still, forever. <laughs> Expansion was also a major consideration, bringing in new provinces and territories. In 1869, John and Agnes MacDonald had a daughter, Mary. Uh, it soon became apparent, though, that Mary had an ongoing developmental issue. She was never able to walk, nor was she ever fully developed mentally. Mary likely had a, a, a long word called hydrocephalasis. Sorry to anybody who may have that or know someone who has that, um, which today can be treated by inserting a shunt at the base of the brain to drain excess fluids. Oh. So essentially, she has too much water in her brain, oh. my medical opinion. She's got water in her brain, but they don't know how to fix it yet. But today we would be able to cure that really yeah. easily. Despite the chaos, the uh, Canada was expanding and growing. Uh, despite the chaos of having despite, a child with a disability. Despite the chaos generally in his life, not just Mary. <laughs> uh, McDonald continued to work on the national policy, which like was his bread and butter. It established high tariffs, promoted immigration and Western settlement, and lay plans for a transcontinental railway all of this was to defend Canadian business from American competition. So you have like big emigration issues of people being like, I'll just go to the States and I can make more money. Right. We don't have that problem anymore, of course. Um, doesn't happen ever. But uh, yeah, so you have a lot of like entrepreneurs leaving Canada. Right. During his first administration, McDonald became a nation builder, quote unquote. In this period, Manitoba, the Northwest Territories, present day Saskatchewan and Alberta, British Columbia and PEI all joined um, the original four provinces of confederation. The intercolonial railway between Quebec City and Halifax uh, started to be built, and plans were made for a transcontinental railway all the way to the Pacific coast. Okay, so then the Nova Scotians are like, all right, we'll stay. Yeah, like eventually they... We can... I don't know if it'll ever come up. I don't think it's really in a heritage minute. But yeah, Nova Scotia has like a big anti-confederation movement. Yes. Which ends when their leader is kind of like, all right, fine, I'll just be in your cabinet. Joseph Howe. He's a cool guy. That's oh, why. That's what Howe Street Joe and Howe. everything. Yeah, Joe Howe. Everybody uh, likes him. Uh, not everybody. <laughs> no. Not everybody. <laughs> These undertakings involved unprecedented expenditures of public funds and did not proceed without incident. Particularly, Manitoba entered the Union following an insurrection led by Louis Riel against the takeover of the area by the Dominion government, thereby forcing McDonald's government to grant provincial status much sooner than had been intended and accepted a system of separate schools and the equality of French and English languages. And Louis Riel will... We'll oh, we'll get him into that someday. one. Yeah. Someday we're going to do the heritage run on Louis Riel. To this day, the most haunting one I've ever seen. They just like hang a dude on camera. Anyways. <laughs> 
McDonald's. R.I.P. R.I.P. Louis Riel. Everyone in this is dead. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone is dead. It's a murder podcast. <laughs> McDonald's involvement in the negotiations for a contract to build the uh, CPR to British Columbia involved him eventually in the Pacific Scandal. Ooh. Scandal. Scandal. During the 1872 election, large campaign contributions had been made to him and his colleagues by Sir Hugh Allen, who was to have headed the railway syndicate. McDonald claimed that his hands were clean because he had not profited personally from his association with Allen, but his government was forced to resign in late 1873, and in the election of 1874, he was defeated. So, like, yeah, this is essentially... It looks like the end of his political career. Another Hugh just messing things Another up for John. Another Hugh coming in and messing stuff up. What is it with Hughes? Oh, man. <sighs> Sorry to all the Hughes out there. Some of these political problems stem from the fact that he, like many of his contemporaries, were heavily drinking at the time. All the drinks. All the drinks. By his own admission, McDonald could not recall periods of time during the <laughs> 1872 elections and negotiations with Allen. Just blackout. Can't remember any of them. His drinking subsequently became more moderate. Luckily, however, Canada fell into a depression during the administration. Luckily. Of, yeah. <laughs> luckily for him, during the administration of Alexander Mackenzie and Mac McDonald's conservatives were re-elected in 1878. Uh, so John A. McDonald would remain prime minister for the rest of his life. So I didn't want to go super deep into his economic policies because I don't think they're particularly exciting. Um, so I've condensed the rest of his political career into these little bullets. Uh, it's all taken from the Canadian Encyclopedia. Okay, uh, tell me a bullet and I'll give you my reaction. All right. One. He completed the Transcontinental Canadian Pacific Railway in 1885. It was an incredibly expensive undertaking, costing upwards of $100 million. The physical linking contri contributed greatly to Canada's growing autonomy. Well, the railway's cool. We all love the train. That was good. That was good for Canada. So good for John. That I love, was a good thing he did. I love a train. Yeah. It's 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 how it's the like gentleman's way of travel. It definitely yeah. is. Okay, bullet point number two. I'm ready. Northwest resistance occurred when McDonald himself was superintendent general of Indian Affairs, so the Department of Indian Affairs. He was the head of it for a period of time. The subsequent execution of Louis Riel in 1885 greatly increased animosity between French-speaking and English-speaking Canadians, um, not to mention relations with the Métis and First Nations, and cost MacDonald political support in Quebec, where Riel was regarded as a martyr to forces of Anglo-Saxon imperialism, which is so Quebec. Right. It's Quebec making it about them. Yes. Like, he was trying to gain support for his nation, and the French were like, but he spoke French. Yeah. He's our guy. So there's Louis again. Louis's back. What a guy. What a guy. Third bullet point. Okay. Ontario Premier Oliver Mowat, our former apprentice from earlier, launched a series of successful legal challenges to the powers of the central government, resulting in a federal system that was much less centralized than McDonald had intended. Mm. The federal power of disallowance, which enabled the federal cabinet to cancel provincial legislation, had been freely used during the early days of the Dominion, but was virtually abandoned by the end of the 19th century due to provincial opposition. Okay. So federal government had like a really strong power of veto for a long time. 
Oliver Mowat, his former apprentice, gets rid of that and gives more power to the provinces. So, and like, state rights. How did John feel about that? Uh, not great. He wanted to have not really great. centralized power. Okay. Because he's all about power, right? So he wants prime minister to be, like, the top dog. Right. Which it is. But, and like, definitely more power. he brought up this, power. this young guy, Oliver, and then Oliver went and just... Betrayed. Betrayed him. Betrayed by Oliver Mowat. Okay. Okay. The CPR in particular has rightfully marred much of McDonald's legacy given his unmerciful tactics to build it. McDonald was responsible for the development of Aboriginal policies that included the development of residential schools and increasingly repressive measures against Aboriginal populations, oh, especially in the West. no, John. Johnny boy. Uh, to McDonald, the building of the CPR took pri over priority over everything else. According to historian James Daschuk, Canadian officials withheld food from Aboriginal people until they moved to reserves, thus clearing the land needed for the railway to be constructed, and thousands died. While he tried to extend the vote to all Aboriginal males without revoking their Indian status, which is the legal term for that, which allotted them special rights and privileges, this proposal was compromised with the eventual Electoral Franchise Act of 1885. In the end, only Aboriginal men who lived on reserves and had made at least $150 worth of improvements to their land were granted uh, the vote. And this entirely excluded Aboriginal people living in the West. Um, this oh, act was, John. Oh, John. Uh, this act was repealed in 1898, and Aboriginal men lost the vote entirely. So Aboriginal people cannot vote in this country until the 1960s. So, which is crazy. really not a fan of John A. Macdonald. He's not great. Yeah, they were not, the, the Aboriginal folks were not... And I'm going to say, gets worse. Oh, no. Although McDonald proposed... Wait, is this the next bullet point? Uh, yeah. Okay. Well, I've gone past bullet points. Now we're just talking about how he was racist. Oh. Mm -hmm. <laughs> history. That's history. history for you. People die. People are racist. <laughs> Although McDonald proposed extending the vote to all Aboriginal males, he had at the same time passed legislation to exclude all those of Chinese origin. In the 1880s, around 15,000 Chinese laborers helped to build the Canadian Pacific Railway, working in harsh conditions for little pay. They suffered greatly, and historians estimate that at least 600 died. Um, There's a heritage minute about that, too. There is also a heritage minute about that. We love that one. Love it's a great one. one. Their employment caused controversy, particularly in British Columbia, where politicians worried about the potential economic and cultural impact of this influx of Chinese workers. MacDonald, however, defended their employment in constructing the railway. As the project near completion, though, MacDonald and the Canadian government excluded persons of Mongolian or Chinese race from voting because they had no British instincts or British feelings or aspirations. Oh, man. Because <laughs> so, so those instincts are great. <laughs> those instincts lead to only good things. Um, so the same year, they passed the Chinese Immigration Act, which stated that anyone of Chinese origin had to pay a head tax of $50 upon entering the country. So you have to pay to live here. Sir John A. Macdonald served as prime minister for a total of six terms. He was called for his final election on March 5th, 19, or 1891. The campaign was hard on him. He was now 76 and found travel very difficult. He collapsed at one point and wound up conducting political activities from his brother-in-law's house in Kingston. So he stopped campaigning. He just like had a central office, I guess, in Kingston. Right. He won the election, but shortly after suffered a stroke, which left him partially paralyzed and unable to speak. 
He lived for a few more days. He was surrounded by Agnes, Mary, his son, Hugh John, and Hugh's son, Jack, when he died on the 6th of June, 1891. Thousands attended his wake and watched his casket as it was transported by funeral train to his home of Kingston. Man loved trains. Man loved trains. He was buried in Catacree Cemetery, which I don't know if that's how you say it, but Catacree Cemetery in Kingston near his first wife, Isabella. And that is the life and times of Sir John A. Macdonald. Good to see you again, John. (laughs) From the grave. (laughs) We're back again. (laughs) So how do you like it? I loved it. That's the life of Sir John A. Macdonald. I feel informed. Feel informed. I feel educated. How do you feel about our first prime minister now that you really know him? Oh, boy. (laughs) Oh, boy. Briefly, before we wrap up, all of the sources that get used for these episodes are going to be posted on our website. So please go look at those sources if you actually want like some more information about it. Um, and please watch the watch the Heritage Minute. Watch the Heritage Sir Minute. Yeah. I will say just like on the podcast, though, the two main sources that I use throughout. The first is Patricia Fenix's um, Private Demons, The Tragic Personal Life of John A. McDonald. <laughs> Wasn't it, though? Wasn't it? So that book is really great. She does kind of like a biography of his life, but from the perspective of like his personal right- life rather than right. his politics. And then Donald Creighton's uh, 1965 kind of like tomb on the life of John A. McDonald. So uh. it's a two-parter, uh, the young oh. politician and then the old chieftain. It's really long. But very good if you want, like, the real political history of everything that's going on. He doesn't talk as much trash about Sir John A. MacDonald. Well, he likes Sir John A. MacDonald. But, yeah. No. Patty was just, like, alcoholic. Patricia's like, let's talk about the wife, though. Yeah. Let's talk about <laughs> that situation for two seconds. Because it's weird when you marry your cousin. It's weird. Not then. Same grandma. Same grandma. When we see grandma, it's the, the same, same woman. Same lady. Yeah. Well, thanks everyone for listening. Thank you so much. Uh, Grace and I really appreciate it. We do have an Instagram at uh, Minute Women Podcast yep. on Instagram. We also have a Facebook page at uh, Minute Women Podcast. And then we have a website, which is also just www.minutewomenpodcast.ca. Yeah, and that's where you'll find all the sources and you can stay up to date when new episodes are going to be put out and it's going to be really exciting it's going to be really fun you can see fun pictures of us fun pictures of us in the like dorks. Yeah. <laughs> we'll get a picture of mark on there soon probably yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so give us a follow on all of our social media platforms check out our website and leave a comment telling us which canadian heritage minute we should do next yeah and don't forget to rate and subscribe to us wherever you listen to your podcasts well thanks so much for listening see you next week